Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Gulani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm really happy to welcome entrepreneur and investor Carly Stockdale, the co-founder and CEO of Best Life Holdings, a platform of age management organizations, including the Foundation for Healthy Aging and Senogenics. She's carved a unique path in healthcare, starting with earning bachelor's and master's degrees in public health from Yale, and then working in traditional academic medicine at Mass General and other large hospitals. She later transitioned to the digital health startup world as the CEO of Chart Request, the first self-service medical record exchange platform. Her passion for women's health led her to become the first operating executive at Prelude Fertility, which she quickly built into the largest U.S.-based fertility clinical network. Since 2011, Carly has invested in and advised many digital health companies independently, as well as the growth team at Morgan Stanley as an entrepreneur in residence. I'm looking forward to asking her about trends she's seen across the industry, particularly hormone therapy, as well as her approach to investing and work at Best Life. And before we get started, I'd like to give a shout out to our mutual friend, mentor and advisor, Mitch Rothschild, as well as Alan Patrikoff, who started Primetime Partners, which has also invested in Carly's companies. So Carly, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Super excited to be on here, Shiv, and thanks so much for having me. So as we like to do with all of our guests, we like to start with learning more about you and what led you from an interest in public health and working in a hospital system to investing in the digital health space. As you mentioned, I got started in academic medicine. I was working at the Mass General and a number of really large healthcare institutions in the United States amazing missions, great people to work with. The pace was a little slower than what I'd liked to work in. And so I went into consulting soon after that. And while the pace was quicker, you just kind of miss the implementation or, or really rounding back to delivering on the recommendations that we were given. So for me, I kind of entered a moment early in my career where I just wasn't feeling entirely fulfilled. It was fine. And I think for many people on this podcast, you know, you put your heart and soul into what you're doing. You don't ever want to say you're fine. So <laughs> I went on kind of a personal journey. I could probably do a podcast on that personal journey, but it kind of culminated on, in me sitting on the steps of the San Diego City Hall <laughs> and ultimately um, buying a house that was being foreclosed on. And I partnered with someone and we ultimately flipped this house and I made my entire year's consulting salary in two months. And for me, it was a real moment of, uh, disintermediating my time with my revenue generation ability. And it, it was it was it was very significant for me early in my career. This was also, you know, that was 2009. I kind of continued on alternative investment paths along that way using the money I had just made. And digital health was really becoming a thing. So Rock Health was starting in San Francisco. Techstars had opened up a digital health accelerator in New York called Blueprint Health. I actually moved there to start a company. And I sat behind another company, a guy named Reed Mullins and then Andre Zimolas, and they were starting a company called doctor.com. And Andre and Reed were just giving this pitch behind me. It must've been like a thousand, I mean, hundreds of pitches a day. It started pretty terribly. And you know, over the course of months and accumulation of years, and then I'm sure what Reed did with, has overly earned his 10,000 hours, but the pitch got so much better and the product became so much better and what they were promising was getting delivered. But even before that, I could just see so much grit. And I think for me, investing in digital health companies was really about investing with people alongside me in the trenches that I knew would 
have the fortitude to kind of get through a lot of really significant trials and tribulations early on as it always happens. And then also people who are just really passionate and working on like meaningful problems. So it was really simple. Doctor.com was kind enough to let me participate in all their subsequent rounds. They were actually acquired by Preschini earlier this year. And, you know, I'm very fortunate to say that I made back the money that I put into all of my subsequent investments and more from that. But for me, it's been a really awesome journey and it kind of starts and ends with the people. It definitely resonates with me and especially that realization of uh, being able to disintermediate your time from your impact, you know, by creating something that will outlast you or bring a lot of people together and do something pretty amazing for the period of time. So speaking of your investments and interests, a particular interest I know of yours is women's health. And we've had several people on the podcast who are also interested and dedicated to maternal health, which is having a renaissance moment, it seems, over the past year and a half, two years. People like we had Chelsea Clinton from Metrodora Ventures on, and we had Dina Shakur at Lux Capital, which often talks about this stuff, among many others. So everyone has a sort of personal story. would love to hear anything you're willing to share. Tell us why you're focused on women's health. What gets you most excited about the space right now? Yeah, it's so exciting to see so much investment dollars go into the space. And I think the impetus of my interest in women's health was personal in nature at, at some point, but really came down to kind of a core idea behind some very like fundamental health economics. Kenneth Arrow came up with this way of describing imperfect healthcare markets through information asymmetry. So inherently there's always information asymmetry between doctors and patients, right? Google doesn't make up for that gap. So what was interesting about the areas that I focused on in, in women's health, so let's start with fertility was, you know, in 2008 fertility preservation or egg freezing was made non-experimental by ASRM, which was the professional medical society. And women were not only unaware that they should be thinking about freezing their eggs earlier than they were usually in their twenties or their early thirties, or, you know, after you're 35, you should really think about going to a reproductive endocrinologist after six months of trying to get pregnant versus a year. This very fundamental information not only was not known by patients, but also was not being communicated by OBGYNs who are more frequently seeing the patients on a daily basis. So that gap between not only the patient's understanding and the doctor's understanding, but also like between the reproductive endocrinologists and the OBGYNs is pretty significant and pronounced. Over the last few years, I think we've really seen an explosion. You know, women have gotten very educated on their options here. And that's so exciting. I think now my interest in later stage women's health is kind of along the same lines where many women who are going through perimenopause or menopause are approaching their physicians and being told that this is just a time of life, this is how you manage it, and, and they're not necessarily being given options or even the latest research that's relevant to interventions at their stage of life. And so their experience, again, going to an OBGYN who went through kind of like the standard medical education over the last 30 years is very different from the physicians who've, I think, proactively taken a stance of, you know, learning from the North American Menopause Society or really doing their own research on the space. So <laughs> that gap of information is ultimately, I think, what really drives my interest in, in women's health. And it just happens to be something, of course, that's very personally interesting to me just because I will and 100% of women will who, who ultimately live long enough spend most of my life through menopause, right? So I do want providers who are very educated in this space and 
I want to have as much clinical evidence as possible to kind of guide my choices through that time. Definitely. And I think one of the nice things about the direct-to-consumer renaissance that's happened, you know, since 12 years ago, but it seems like it's really caught steam now. Pandemics accelerated a lot of these trends. Consumer-driven healthcare, DTC, as well as telehealth, is that more patients and more providers are updating their knowledge about their own health. And so this actually is a good segue into the next question, which is, you know, as you know, Osmosis is a teaching company. And we love to fill in knowledge gaps. And I'm curious if you could snap your fingers and you know change medical school curricula or teach anybody anything, what are some of the things you're most interested in people learning that they don't already know right now? Such a great question. And I'm so grateful that a few years ago, I partnered with a lecturer at Stanford University and she really gave kind of the menopause lecture, the Stanford medical students who were non-OBGYN students, it was a few hours and it represented almost the totality of their exposure to menopause, which was frightening. So the difference or the change I would make is I think making some early fundamental investments in women and men's health and then um, applying some better data science to interpretation of those results. If we look at the early 90s, I think many people probably listen to this podcast remember this time when the headline was estrogen or hormone therapy equals breast cancer. And what happened was there was a study called the Women's Health Initiative that came out and it was about 26,000 people. And the headline pointed these interventions to ultimately breast cancer and, and different negative outcomes. And, you know, it took us almost like 20 to, to almost 30 years later to say, okay, look, actually with these initial studies, they were very fundamentally flawed. Average age in these studies was 64 years old biggest risk factor for many of these, either CVD or these cancers is, is age in itself. So as we think about hormone therapy, we really need to look at interventions occurring in the perimenopause years. And so reanalysis of the WHI trials really shows that not only can interventions in that time, like improve very real symptomology, right? So women are going through kind of years of cognitive change and decline. It's temporary, but it's extremely uncomfortable for the people who are going through them. Real feelings of depression and anxiety, you know, not only can you oftentimes release that symptomology, but you also have a beneficial effect on the cardiovascular system, um, reducing coronary disease and all cause of death associated with many of these interventions. So I think my biggest ask would be that medical education is expanded to include a more a deeper look at hormone therapy, not only for women, but also for men, you know, men's hormone therapy, I think went through something very similar where at some point testosterone was associated with prostate cancer and cardiovascular disease. And if you look at like a lot of good research by Dr. Mohi Kara, Dr. Abraham Mogenthaler, you'll see that there's like a very beneficial and important impact from testosterone as well. So I think some of that re-education, which most doctors don't have time to do for patients on a one-on-one -on -one basis, would be really fantastic in the medical education itself. We'll take note of that. I think that's a really good topic for us all to explore, just because uh, as we know, and as Alan and, and Abby at Primetime Partners have, have made a whole fund for, the demographics are clear. People are aging and more and more people will need these types of therapies and are, are seeking that knowledge out which is actually goes into your company, Best Life Holdings. And can you give our audience a bit of a, a sense of what Best Life is, what you're hoping to achieve with it? Yeah, absolutely. So the name really says it. We're building a platform that enables healthy aging at scale with access to physician-supervised hormone therapy, 
and other really critical age management services, really opening up so that our clients or patients, you know, have more um, access to insights that are specific to them. So our North Star metric is really, we look to improve people's biological age. Your biological age is the impact of the pace of your body's aging. So your biological age reflects a combination of genetics, lifestyle factors like exercise and, and your diet and other, other determinants like your demographics. But we really want to impact that through education of other healthcare providers through our foundation and membership of our programs, such as like through Cenogenics and other programs that we're looking to start. So historically, Cenogenics has you know, been around for over 25 years. It's our peak performance and longevity membership program. We've served over 35,000 patients and the Foundation for Healthy Aging has educated over 1,300 physicians nationally on our program. So we're really looking to expand the impact with patients and other providers who can better understand all the important interventions that we can do to ultimately reduce and delay the onset of chronic disease. Totally. Uh, and as we know, Alan, Alan jokes that he's going to live to 114. And so I believe is leveraging Cenogenics for some of that. Right. So can you talk to us about like, what, what makes it different? Like Cenogenics itself is, is, you know, it's been around 25 years, you're growing, you have many different centers. There's a pretty awesome onboarding protocol around it. Hormone therapy, genetic testing, like, you know, what are some of the things that our audience should know about it since, since some of them may be recommending things like that? Yeah. So I definitely recommend having one of our doctors or, or health coaches on because they can speak much more extensively on this. We've got a group of almost 30 physician partners. Average time that they've been at our organization is over 12 years and an even larger group of health coaches with a similar longevity in the company. So people who are deeply passionate about, I would say that the number one you know thing that kind of describes the program is we facilitate the collection and analysis of deep and personalized analytics. So every quarter we are collecting your blood biomarkers, over 90 biomarkers that really give us an indication of what your overall state of health is. In addition to that, our customers are coming to our centers around the country for almost a full day of analysis. So they'll hop on a bike, we'll get their VO2 max. So we get a really uh, precise understanding of their peak oxygen level, cognitive scoring based on your reaction time and memory, just a real understanding of other functional tests, looking at your exact body composition, visceral fat, bone density, looking at an ultrasound to look at coronary arterial vein. So it's really, Cenogenics is, I call it the ultimate investment in practice and improving your health. For me personally, it's had a pretty massive impact. We're sending all of our data. So we've, we've recently put together a, a collection of about 3,500 patients that have gone through the program looked at impact on things like visceral fat, overall inflammation levels, VO2 max, and really seemed like an amazing and very highly statistically significant trend line of improvements. So we're excited about publishing some of that data later this year. It's awesome. Really excited to see it. And, and clearly an area that'll, I think as time goes on, just be more and more of an interest. You know, most of our audience are kind of early stage healthcare professionals or even students. What advice would you give to them about meeting the challenges of this moment in our healthcare system, especially given how diverse your own career has been from public health to working for a health system to now running a, a company? 
Yeah, there's so much to do in healthcare. It's like, it's such a gift to be able to, you know, make the world a better place and see demonstrable impacts on either like population health or people's individual health. I think anyone can find a great place to exist in this field. I think choosing your pond is so important. Like when you're choosing a college, you don't go to NYU if you really want a unique, like or a very isolated, small pond to be in, you know, and you don't choose like a, a small private school if you want to be in a big city like New York. So I think choosing your pond is an important thing to do as it relates to your field. Like if you look at reproductive endocrinology, for example, you know, that's an industry or a field that was created 35 years ago by two physicians who were, and, and a family that very desperately wanted to have a child and a, two physicians who were willing to really push the envelope. And then a number of physicians after that, that were willing to experiment in order to figure out how to procreate without sex. You know, and every five years, you see even five years ago, like the genetic testing, the, the innovations in the field move so fast that our idea of ethics and public policy can't keep up with it. So I think like, do you want to be in that kind of pace surrounded by massive amounts of dollars going into research and, and then kind of contrast that with, if you look at, call it more primary care for women. So I was talking about the North American Menopause Society where there haven't been massive influxes of research dollars in that field. So if you want to be the person that's really, I think, putting forward the seminal research on new interventions that typically haven't been reimbursed, you can more stand out in that field, but you can't expect too much, I think, movement around you. You have to be more of the change maker in that field. So I guess beyond the kind of obvious, like, try to shadow and try to interview whoever you think you want to be. Because again, early in my career, I thought I wanted to be a transplant surgeon. Turns out that would have been a terrible idea. <laughs> but I think uh, really getting to know the space and understanding like what conditions you like to operate in are, is really helpful. Yeah, no pun intended for the conditions to operate in for you. But uh, that's good advice. And it's interesting how much career zigzag, right? And how just being open to opportunities also knowing that things are not irreversible. Like when you make a decision, like you could still be a transplant surgeon if you wanted to at this point. Right. A friend of mine, her, his dad just graduated law school at 79. And so very few things in life, I think, are totally irreversible. So it's good to good to keep that in mind, too. Well, um, I just want to build on that. You know, you look at people in their careers and some people really go deep. And, and I think you look at that in healthcare too, right? Like if you're a doctor, many times you're focused on individual progress. And then there's different areas in the field where, you know, you focus on, you know, expansion of different concepts to impact a wider audience. And so if we look at kind of like what Best Life is doing, we're focusing on expanding some of our programs with telemedicine, right? And I think a lot of people on this podcast or people listening to this are kind of thinking about their own practice that way. But there's always the possibility of every changing industries. I think like domain experience for most professions isn't nearly as important as for doctors, right? You have to get such specialized training, but nothing precluding us from going back and reinventing ourselves. Totally. So you mentioned telemedicine, actually, this is one of my last two questions for you, which is there've been a lot of trends that have been accelerated because of the pandemic, one of which is telemedicine. The adoption of that went sky high. You've been studying and being in the digital health space for a while. 
What are some of the um, trends happening that you're most excited about in digital health? It's so funny. When I was an investor, I could have given you like five summarized and five of 100. And now when as an entrepreneur, you're so heads down and focused on the ones that are really relevant to you. So, I mean, we are very focused on using telemedicine in a way that's highly impactful. So as you saw during COVID, you know, expansion of telemedicine was pretty prolific, especially for acute needs. And the number of programs that I think really do it well on a longitudinal basis are few and far in between. You know, the Cenogenics program, for example, average time in the program is 54 months. So, you know, you know that people feel like a lot of connection to the program and want to stay on it. So how do we kind of retain or even expand that patient loyalty or patient experience when it becomes um, completely remote, right? So we won't need people to go into one of our 20 centers, but we can actually see them anywhere. So I just think that trend of how to make telemedicine impactful for the longitudinal care programs is what I'm most focused on not getting distracted by the noise of, you know, people who are kind of just avoiding a, a necessary visit for UTI or something like that, but really thinking about like, how do we help our patients develop relationships with a care team in a meaningful way when it's completely virtual? Absolutely. And I think that's good, not only for the patient, but also for the provider in an age of transactional medicine, being able to have those longitudinal relationships is important. My last question, is there anything else you wish I'd asked you or that you want our audience to know about you, about Best Life or the space, anything? No, you know, Shiv, really grateful to be on here. I think the ultimate takeaway and something you espouse all the time on, on this podcast, which I appreciate, is just always be learning. You know, this field that we're talking about, whether it's hormone therapy or reproductive endocrinology or many others, is constantly evolving. And you know, you need clinical evidence to evolve that. And the best clinical evidence that we get comes from pharmaceutical companies and they're doing their controlled clinical trials. But if there are interventions like sometimes hormone therapy, which is definitely not under patent and could potentially serve as a substitute for medications that they make a lot of money off of, like antidepressants or anti-anxieties, it's harder to get that level of information. So I think it's, important as a provider to educate yourself so that you can be, you know, the Sherpa that you want to be for the patients coming to you. And then critical as a patient as well, to be educating yourself on the newest uh, research that could come in that, that really impacts how you live your life. Those are some great parting words of wisdom. So Carly, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today and sharing all the work that you're doing to advance healthy aging through Best Life, as well as the digital health space. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Chef. Appreciate it. And with that, I'm Shiv Gulani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.